The Shloa Kodesh in this parasha discusses the concept of Yerusha, inheritance, and how the um, the mitzvah, the halachas involving Yerusha, inheritance, betray the deeper spiritual relationship that exists between different family members, between parents and children, our extended family who are in line of the inheritance. Incidentally, it also betrays, the laws of Yerushi betray what Chassidus and Kabbalah discusses often, the relationship between an owner and property. Not only is the mitzvah Yerusha indicative of the relationship of family members, it also shows that there is a deeper bond between the physical things that we own and the owners. As the Baal Shem Tov talks about um, in Keseshemtov, that there's a Nitzutz Kedusha in every piece of property, and the reason why we own those properties is because we have a spiritual divine mission to elevate those pieces of property for Kedusha and use it for a holy purpose. And the reason why those pieces of property end up becoming ours is because our Neshama has a special relationship, Dafke, specifically with those uh, sparks in the Tzutzi Kedusha. And um, the Bashantov explains with that, but the Gemara says that Torah um, has pity on the, on the property of the Jewish people. It's not just uh, worrying about the expenses and the economics of it, it's, it's about the Torah is worried about the spiritual relationship that we have with physical property. So the Shlach explains like this. He says, initially when Hashem created the world, He created Adam and Chava with the, with the intent and with the purpose that both body and soul will be in perfect harmony with each other, and therefore they would both be eternal. No Misa, no death. But then when a person commits a sin, they drove a wedge between body and soul, the body became corrupt and can no longer um, subsist forever. But, but the neshama remains pure and the neshama remains eternal. So the Mashiach comes, this wedge that had been driven between body and soul will be suspended because the body will be renewed. It's, it's old, uh, glorious design that was given to it during the time of creation will return all through the process of Misa, which death brings atonement and repairs the damage that has been caused through the hate, through the sin, and the body will be able to rejoin and reconnect with the Neshama and become a perfect, um, a perfect uh, unit and, um, and, and regain its eternity. But for now, he says, the eternity of a human being lies only in his neshama. The body of human beings exists forever, but not in person, but more in race. It's called in, in, in Hebrew, not only bemin. That means that the race of human beings will continue forever, but the individual body will not live forever. It will have to die eventually. Whereas the neshama 
that's forever. So here there is eternity in a human being's life, even on a personal level, on an individual level, in person, not only in race. So he says, what is the concept of Yerusha? The whole concept of Yerusha is to tell us um, that this relationship that parents have with children is not only through the body, because they happen to be born physically through them, because there's an Ashama relationship. And that relationship continues even after the parent dies. There is a oneness between the parents, the generations of parents and children that connects them with such a bond, which results in the concept of Yerusha, that the estate that the parent leaves behind naturally is transmitted to the children. And um, the Chinuch says a similar thing, that there's a certain oneness between parents and children, and that really, in a sense, betrays this concept in Chesidus, that the relationship of uh, the owners have with property is a deeper spiritual relationship, because we see this through Yerusha, that it's the spiritual bond between the Shamas of parents and children that naturally leads to their physical property to be automatically transferred to the children. There's a physical property. What does it have to do with the neshama? The answer is that physical property is deeply connected with the neshama of the person who owned it because of the nitsutsu kedusha that's in them. And therefore, if the parent vacated their place in this physical world where they accomplish and finish their mission vis-a-vis the property that was allocated to that person, now it's automatically... Um, understood that the children move into the position of the parents to continue that, that same legacy. Your children, as David says in Tilim, your children move in, they, they, um, they replace their parents, they, they move into the same position as the parents. They succeed their parents in that position which the parents had in influencing the fate of the physical property which they were allocated that's why the Gemara says in, in, in Saita that just like it's preordained who you're going to marry because these two Nishamis were preordained to be together even before they were born the same thing is preordained which field and which house will be yours is preordained before the person is even born why is that relevant when a, before a person is born there's just a Nishama who cares about physical property, about money and fields and the houses? It's all material stuff. It's all stuff of the body. The answer is no. That there is a deep bond between the neshama and the physical property, the nitzutzeg dusha that are embedded within the physical property. And that all comes out in the midst of Yerusha. Now, interestingly enough, we know in halachic uh, 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 terminology, Yerusha, and, which is a form of transmission of uh, ownership of property between one person and another, between a parent and a child. It differs in nature from all other forms of transactions. Let's say a sale, when somebody transfers ownership to another person via a sale or through giving a gift. In Allah, there's a fundamental difference in the nature of this transaction. I already discussed this in a previous post, maybe a while ago. It's a long discussion, but uh, I'll just keep it brief. There's two fundamental differences. One is that Yerusha does not happen because of the 
deceased. It's not that the deceased is wants to give the property to the children, therefore the Torah says we should act out the wishes of a parent. This is how secular law actually sees it. In secular law, it's called a bequest. A bequest really means that the law is going on the assumption that a parent would want their closest in kin to inherit their estate. So we're acting out on behalf of the wishes of the, 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 um, the testator, the, the, the deceased. What if the deceased decides that he wants somebody else to inherit him? He wants the inheritance to go to someone else. Then we do that, exactly that. You can write a will and say, I don't want my kids to inherit anything. In Torah, that's not possible. There's a Mishnah in Baba Basra. Somebody says, I don't want my children to inherit me. I want a stranger to inherit me. It doesn't work. Because Yerusha is not connected to the consent of the Meirish, the one who is bequeathing or is, um, who is the deceased. Yerusha happens automatically, naturally. It's a flow. That's why Svorim write that in the Torah, in this week's parsha, Yerusha is called Nachalon. Nachalon comes from the word Nachal. Nachal is a flow, a river, a stream. It flows from one place to the other naturally, right? It's, it, the, the flow of generations between parents, children, and grandchildren is a natural flow all the way till Meshach Rabbeinu. And all the legacies, spiritual legacies and physical legacies, which are also spiritual, as I said before, naturally flow down from one generation to the next. That's why a father cannot say, I don't want my children to inherit. You can give it away to someone else a moment before death. But you can't make somebody else the heir, the Yerush. That will not work. You could, there is one thing that a parent could do, according to Allah, is narrow the flow and have one child inherit as opposed to the others, exclude the others. That's a possibility. Torah gives that privilege to the parent, although Chachamim don't like it and say that's creating conflict and tension between children and it's not a good thing. It's also not good for the neshama of the deceased to have tension between the different uh, siblings. But there is a halacha, for example, that if I give a gift to someone, I give my field a gift to one person, and I say, after that person dies, I want that gift to be given to the next person. I don't want his heirs, his yoshim, to take over the property. Notice I'm not giving it to him indefinitely. I'm giving it him as a gift only for the period of his lifetime. After his lifetime is up, the, this property should be transferred to another person. It's a famous sugi in the Gemara. And the halacha is that it works. If I'm the owner, I can make stipulations on my gift the way I want. I can say I'm giving it only temporarily as long as you're alive. And then after that, I'm giving it to the next person. But with Yerusha, you can't do that. I can't say I want this child to inherit my property. And after he dies, I want it to go to someone else. I can't do that because it's not connected to my consent. Yerusha Eilah Hefzik, the Gemara says. Yerusha has, it cannot be interrupted. Once it kicks in, it's so natural that, that no one can stop it. This also has ramifications. I discussed in this, in this other lecture, it has ramifications regarding a murderer. Can a murderer inherit, can a son, God forbid, who murders their parents, like the Menendez brothers in California in the 80s, 
they murdered their parents, can they, are they entitled to the inheritance? In American history, there's been a lot of discussion on this, going back to the 1800s, and the debate really turned on, can we possibly uh, conceive that the parents would have been willing to give their estate to a child who murdered them, who forced the act- activation of the inheritance by murdering their parents? Of course not, they would never agree to it. And therefore, the argument of most judges in the 1800s was that such an inheritance is not valid. From a perspective of inheritance, it just doesn't make sense. Because what is inheritance, according to the secular understanding, it is basically acting out the assumed or presumed wishes of the parents. Even if the parents didn't make it clear in the will, but if they die, we naturally will give it to the children. Unless there's a will that specifies where they want and how they want their estate to be distributed. In Torah, it's not so. There's evidence actually from the Gemara in Sanhedrin, with a story with Achav, without going into details, the story with Eliyahu and Achav, that Harotzachto Gam Yorashto is evidence from the Gemara that actually a, a murderer does inherit. The Chachamim, the Rabbanon, could sort of um, punish him and fine him, and most likely that's what will happen. They'll confiscate the inheritance and give it to Tzedakah or something to punish in order to discourage and deter people from acting in such horrible ways. But from the Nekudah, from the, from the perspective of Yerusha itself, Minaterim, there's no difference how the, the person died. Even if the Yerush, the beneficiary, is the one who killed and murdered in order to activate the Yerusha, it, it, it has nothing to do with the consent and the wishes of the Merish. It's a natural flow. When the parent goes away, the children take over. There are other interesting cases, which I won't go into great length, where in, in a case of um, sale or gift, if you force somebody at gunpoint to give you a gift, it's not a gift. Um, if you clearly indicate that you don't want to sell, it will not be a sale. If you make it clear in front of two witnesses that I'm, I'm going to sign on the sale, but I don't uh, accept, I don't consent to it, I'm forced, that it's not a sale. Yerusha is different. Because Yerusha is not, not connected to the consent of the Meirish, of the deceased, it's, it's a natural thing. Now, there are other cases where we see a fundamental difference between Yerusha and other forms of transaction, like a sale or a gift. And that's related to um, when somebody, let's say, finds on their property a treasure that was completely beyond anybody's imagination. You know, a, a piece of value that was completely unexpected. Like you find a deep-seated treasure in the ground that was, was sitting there for a thousand years. There was a case like that in Germany many years ago. At any rate, by Mechira, if you would sell somebody a property and they would find a treasure in there, whoever finds the treasure first, it would be his. The previous owner, for example, couldn't say, hey, I sold you the land, I sold you the house, but the treasure in, in, in the ground, that was, I never sold it to you. And the proof is in the price. That treasure is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. But the answer is no, he can't do that. Because the, the halacha is that when a treasure, let's say any, anything which is on a property, even if I didn't know about it, 
but it's on my property, I will be the owner. But if there's something on my property which is so unlikely, nobody expects it to be there, it's so unusual, like in the case of a treasure, then the person who owns the property, if he didn't intend to be kainer, to take possession of that treasure, then it's not his. Whose is it? The, the last person who was aware of it. Who knows how many generations ago this is, how many uh, centuries ago this, this was. So it's nobody's, it's whoever finds it. First, it's, it's his. What about Yerusha? That's if somebody inherits a land for many, many generations. There's an ancestor of that family that placed a treasure in the ground. And now, hundreds of years later, somebody else finds the, um, the treasure in the ground. The answer is it belongs to the family. Why? Because Yerusha is not con- connected to the consent or the awareness of the beneficiary. It's natural. Even if the heir has no concept that this value is there in that property, it's, it's, it, it happens naturally. Right? It's not like other Kenyanim where there has to be consent on the giver and consent on the receiver. When it comes to Yerusha, it happens without the knowledge even, even without the, the awareness of both the deceased and the, and the beneficiary. This is a great lesson in, in, in Beruchnis and the concept of Torah, the relationship of a Jew with Torah. We meet Jews who don't even know what Torah is. They've never, been, they've never heard of it. And we still insist that they have a complete, they're in complete possession of Torah. Every part of Torah, every nuance of Torah, including the most secretive, the most esoteric and mystical ideas of Torah are part of their legacy. They own it. It's part of their neshama. How can we make an argument that a Jew doesn't even know what tefillin is, what Shabbos is? The answer is a Yerusha. And Yerusha is not... Is, is uh, not contingent on whether you know what, what it is, you understand, whether you're aware even that you have it. That's why the halach is regarding finan- uh, um, physical property that a one-day-old child, even if he's only one day old, his parents died and left behind a multi-billion dollar estate. The one-day-old ch- infant is the owner. Ah, he doesn't understand, doesn't know what, what property means. He's still the owner of Allah. He's declared that Allah is the rightful owner of that incredible, massive piece of estate. So that's one concept uh, related to the, the, the relationship of a Yid with Torah is, is regardless, it's by de facto. It's natural. Another interesting concept which the Roget Shavu des- describes, and we can find hints of that in the Shaloh Kodesh and the Chinuch, which I mentioned earlier, that other forms of transaction happened by the property being in one person's domain of ownership and now transfers, transfers out into somebody else's domain of ownership. In other words, the property undergoes a change. Like it says, Avram bought What does the terrorist call it? Not just that it became his. Rashi says, the field, the Mahasamachpela changed in value, spiritual substance. It rose in value, changed completely. Just by the mere fact that it transferred from the hands of the pagan Ephraim into the hands of Avram Avinu. So in other words, there is a change. Other transactions, sales, gifts, it's it's 
it's, it's a change of ownership, which means that the property is changing from one owner to another owner. Yerusha is very different. As the Rogachava argues, and it brings a very fascinating proof from Halacha, from a Tesefta, that Yerusha is not a transfer from one ownership to another ownership, it's the opposite. The property stays in one place, so to speak. It's the Yerush, the beneficiary that moves in to occupy the space of the Meirish, the deceased. In other words, there was a parent who had a Shaykhis with property. And as we said before, there's a Ruchnistiki Shaykhis. When that parent passes away and leaves this void, the child moves into the space where the parent was. This has again a lot of ramifications. I won't go into that in detail, but but is the opposite of a sale and a gift, and this again has uh, beautiful uh, ramifications in terms of Torah being called the Yerusha, the inheritance of every Jew. Many people see the Torah as traveling through the generations, going from one domain of ownership to another domain of ownership and the ownerships have changed dramatically the world is not the same today as it used to be in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu very different world with different conditions different social um, infrastructures everything is different today so those who see the Torah as traveling from one generation to the next generation it enters new environments from generation to generation they see the Torah as being susceptible to change and to be adjusted and accommodated to the new social conditions of the time. This is where the reform and the conservative, we have people who feel the Torah needs to adjust to our cultural uh, changes. But Torah says that's not the case. Yerusha means that the Torah remains where it was. It is still in the same spot as Moshe Rabbeinu stood at Har Sinai. We move in to take over what our predecessors have left. That we, we fill, we move in to fill the void which our predecessors have left behind. In other words, the Torah doesn't change, we change. We adjust to the Torah. We move into the space where Torah, Torah is, is fixed. Torah is immutable. It doesn't move. Because Torah is, just like the Abish is Loishanisi, doesn't change because it's infinite and timeless and limitless. Same thing, Torah is timeless and limitless. It doesn't change. It's we move into Torah. This is another lesson we learned from Yerusha. But now, Torah is also called a Mecher. God says, uh, I gave you a good purchase. It's also called a Matana. Matan Torah, I gave you Torah. So the Rebbe explains this, that Torah has both aspects. So relationship with Torah exists first and foremost. The fact that you're a Jew, regardless of what you know about Torah, regardless of how much you're aware of the value of what you have, you own it. Like the one-day-old infant who owns, can own massive real estate and, 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 and economic resources that are completely beyond its uh, comprehension. The same thing is with Torah. But there is another thing. A Jew must know that Torah is not just his by de facto because he happens to be a Jew. A Jew needs to also invest in Torah. Make Torah an asset that will change him, that will influence him. That's the a metaphor of mecher, a sale. 
it's a transaction where you give something to the seller in order to acquire the rights to that property. Same thing, if you don't invest into learning it and internalizing it, then it will not have an effect, a conscious effect on your life. Yes, in a very abstract sense, you're still the owner of Torah. And when Simcha's Torah comes, you'll be rightfully dancing with that Torah, even though you don't have a clue what's in it. Okay, But in order to truly utilize what that gift was intended to be, and, and, and the relationship we intended to have with it, you have to buy it, purchase it, or even a gift. As the Gemara says, nobody gives a gift to someone just like that. You give a gift to someone because they have done something nice to you, so you like them, so you give it to them. So there's an investment, and there's a reciprocal investment. So this is the two aspects of Torah. Torah, which is by de facto ours, no matter what you do, what you don't do, even if you ignore it all your life, you're still connected to Torah. But every halacha, every nuance in Torah is part of your legacy. But at the same time, a Jew has to know that Hashem also sold us the Torah. Meaning, in order for the Torah to become an active part of our conscious lives, transforming us every day, we need to invest. And that's where the sale comes in.